0: Ladies and gentlemen, as part of the Jeremiah Show, welcome to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Now here's the host of the show, a man who was asked the exact same question by Johnny Carson at least 12 times. It's TV's Tim Stack. Yay! Me! Yay, me! Tim Stack, yay! Um... Back for another one of It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. I have some wonderful guests that I'm going to introduce in a minute, Uh, but I'll quickly tell Johnny Carson's story. So back, in fact, it has to do with me being a waiter. I might have waited on our guests way back in the day at the Ginger Man in Beverly Hills uh, because I worked for Carol O'Connor, who owned that restaurant, and Johnny Carson used to come in all the time. He came in on Sunday nights, was his big night. He would come in. And there were... My observation was there were always three kinds of waiters that Johnny Carson would have. And you have to remember, in 1980, Johnny Carson was the king of Hollywood. He was the king. More than anybody in the... bit. Just crazy, Johnny Carson was the king of Hollywood. So he would come in, and there were three kinds of waiters. The first waiter was the guy or waitress who would do this. They would deliver the plate, and then they would go... Here's Johnny. (laughs) And Johnny would just, he hated that. He would roll his eyes. He just hated that. The other type of waiter, who were Johnny Carson, would be the one who would, Johnny would take like a bite of his food and he would immediately say, how's everything going, Mr. Carson? Everything good? That second bite pretty good? Okay, good. And he would, the waiter waitress would constantly ask Johnny for an update on how they were doing. Johnny hated that. Johnny liked me for some reason because I never did any of that. So I will get to the question that Johnny would always ask me because it was sort of, in my mind, it was my version of being on The Tonight Show at the time. Johnny would, and I don't do a great Johnny Carson impression, but he would always ask me the same question. He would say, "Uh, tell me about the chicken. Anyway, that's my, <laughs> that's my Johnny Carson story. Tell me about the chicken. That was my version of being on The Tonight Show in 1980. Anyway, we're gonna play that clip to intro them. Today we are honoring a man who has had an illustrious career in
1: the music industry. Many of his career highlights were achieved right here in this historic Capitol Records tower, which he helped to save and preserve. And today, Hollywood honors music executive Joe
0: Smith. Yeah, okay, here we go. A really good DJ turned legendary record company executive. He signed and worked with, you're not going to believe this list, The Grateful Dead, Jackson Brown, The Eagles, I've heard of them, The Cars, My Neighbors in Boston, incidentally, Joni Mitchell, Carly Simon, Garth Brooks, Queen, X, Linda Ronstadt. My favorite credit about our my or who we're going to be talking a lot about today, Joe Smith, is that both Bonnie Raitt, and Mel Brooks performed at his at his memorial, which I still can't get over. Uh please welcome the family of Joe Smith, also known as the Smith family singers. That's what I called them. Donnie Smith, Julie Kellner Smith, and Jeffrey Smith. Yay! Welcome, welcome, welcome. Okay. <laughs> Thank you again for doing this. I was thinking on the drive-in, we met, I think I became friends with the Smith family, Julie Kellner Smith, uh, through through Chris Kellner, right? Through the the boys met in school, Montecino Union. Correct. That would have been, yeah. Um, And then, but what I love about the Smith family is they're all really funny. Like everybody's funny in the family and everybody's a storyteller. And I have to think it kind of started with Joe. Am I right? Yes. Yes. He was a rock on tour. Something that
2: is really uh, sadly lacking in the world today is he could tell stories and tell jokes.
0: Yes. He loved them. It it just I got to see him emcee a dinner one night and it was just I guess the old DJ in him kicked in because he just. He just commandeered the room. It was unbelievable for a guy who didn't do that for a living. At that point, he was a record company executive.
2: Fair to say that he never met a microphone he didn't love.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, let's go back and talk about his history. We're going to start with talking about Joe a lot. Then I want to get into Beverly Hills because I'm so fascinated by when and where you grew up. The kids, at least. Uh, So let's go back. So. Joe got. He was born in Chelsea, Massachusetts, uh, and joins the army in out of high school. Is that right?
3: No, he joined the army uh, after a semester at Yale.
0: Okay. Well, Donnie, tell us tell us a little bit. And Jeff and Julie, just jump in. Like he he goes to does he go to Yale right out of high school?
3: He does. He was on scholarship came from a poor community.
0: Right, Chelsea, which is not, now it's very gentrified, but at the time it was not.
3: Well, I'm not sure how gentrified it is today, having been back there for quite a while. Uh, He was a disc jockey at Yale, and when he graduated Yale, he went on to be country cousin Joe in Virginia on the air. (laughs) And uh,
0: That kills me.
3: He had many years as a disc jockey. In fact, when I met and married him, he was a disc jockey in Boston, which was a uh, very strong place for music. Oh, yeah.
0: And we're going to play a clip later. But one of the things I love, too, is that he was a DJ in Boston. And he still, you know, till his dying day, had a Boston accent. I mean, you could hear that accent coming through with (laughs) with, only you could hear that. Oh, I heard. I love it. I love it because, you know, I'd gone to Boston college and uh, one thing we too have in common with the, uh, I I have in common with the Smith family is their favorite Chinese restaurant in Boston is this restaurant called China sales. Now I don't know how you found China sales. I found it because my brother, one of his, 80,000 jobs in his life was tending bar at China Sales Restaurant. So we'd go there and steal food and whatnot because, you know, he'd walk it out through the back. How did you guys find China Sales Restaurant?
3: Well, I was uh, a new bride uh-huh. in Boston. Yeah. And uh, my in laws knew of China Sales, and it was one of our favorite favorite places for sunday night dinner
0: and then didn't didn't wasn't there a birthday or a retirement dinner and the guy from china sales came out to la oh
3: well he came out at at joe's behest
0: yes
2: (laughs) joe had this idea for years he had this guy in boston he was a promotion man named frank falango (laughs) <laughs> who was like his his sidekick on the radio he was fat and he, and Joe used to rib him all the time, Fat Frank. But Frank became a promotion man for Warner Brothers when when Joe wound up there, and he would get him to go to China sales. And pack up a box with dry ice and that was in the days where you could like get a stewardess for twenty dollars to carry it on the plane and he, you know he'd meet it at the other end or send somebody to go and get it and we would get our our egg rolls and our pork strips and our lobster with cantonese the strangest dish ever lobster with
0: meat sauce but uh, it, this up was fantastic yeah um i just don't remember it being that good i remember it being like but but clearly you had a love for it, and certainly Joe had a love for it to the point where he would bring it to California. It's so funny. You're mistaken. You're <laughs> mistaken.
2: And Maybe part of the reason this show was
0: wildly unpopular.
4: <laughs> Thank you.
0: You are not the first person today to say that. Uh, so I, so we become the DJ in Boston. So he was sort of, he must have been like, I'm going to be a DJ and I'll be a big DJ. I'm already in a big market in Boston. But then something, and and I, I did write down too, at one point, he was also a part-time announcer for the Celtics. Like he would fill in? Uh, a little bit. He did some sports announcing,
2: including... Uh, he called a fight for uh, ABC Carmen Decipio, uh <laughs> who Madison worked, who Ford, worked with Frank COVID Falanga. Sick. <laughs> yeah, the onion, the onion farmer, right? <laughs> um, and so he, he did some sports, and he, he did uh, hockey when he was in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and and he was pretty good. Uh, Mel Brooks thinks he wasted his whole life. He could have really
0: made something of himself if he stayed with sports broadcasting. I... <laughs> He might, yeah, maybe, maybe that's true. Um, but uh, but uh, what I'm getting of is a picture of a guy who, because uh, I want to get to his move to Warner Brothers, but he was clearly a motivated guy. I mean, he seems like a guy not driven like crazy driven, but driven like I'm going to go somewhere in life. Is that a fair question? That's a
3: very good question because when I first met him, he wanted to own radio stations
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, and that never came to be. Uh, we were married, had Jeffrey, moved to L.A. and a year later we had Julie and he was working for a uh, record distribution company called Heartstones and, and in those years. Uh, he was local promotion manager when he went to Warner's, and from that time on, he just went up the, the ladder.
0: But so so, But giving up being a DJ must have been a big deal for him, I'm thinking, at the time. I mean, that's a big, I'm saying goodbye to this that I'm focused on, that I think I'm good at, to do something completely different. Yeah,
2: it, it was a big change for him. And it was the only job he'd ever had really out of college. So he did he did some television and stuff, but it was all announcing and uh, and the move to uh, first Hartstone and and then Warner Brothers where for a time he was on the air uh, doing like night shifts on K-Day and uh, KRLA, rather. Sure, yeah. Uh, Some of the other announcers were Gary Owens. Yeah, Art LeBeau was uh, on there, I believe. Yeah, and uh, uh, Dick Dick Whittingham, right? You know, uh, uh, so he was actually, like, promoting records and being the DJ where he he was, like, paying himself money to put the records on the air wow
3: well we needed the money <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: that's the truth of the it came in and no other income he was so. working with gary owens they had a, a a partnership where they would write jokes for comics really and, yeah in, in the early years i was the
0: typist <laughs> that's so funny can you remember any of the comics who they wrote jokes for
3: Oh, I, I can't. I'm sorry to say.
0: Okay, worse. Uh,
3: they had a business that they would, uh, if you want the jokes, you pay the money.
0: <laughs> it's so funny because that could have driven off to a whole other career in comedy writing, but he stayed with music, which also gets me back to the point I wanted to make about him giving up this job. You know, clearly there was, you know, monetary rewards for what he did, but I always got the feeling in talking to Joe, that he really loved all the work, like he really loved the music, the performing. He just, you know, as much just he he did he really well for himself, but he loved it. He loved all the stuff.
3: Yeah, he did love the music and oh, oh. Ahead, appreciated man. the artist. The artist the artist was always foremost. Okay. In his,
2: we're going get- to. I'll go one further. Yeah. Is that Joe loved everything that he did. And he's a great example for other people. He loved to eat and drink wine. Yeah. He loved yeah. basketball. He loved to, to go to work and he loved to
0: come home. I will say this about basketball. I want to get into that in the next segment. But, but one thing, uh, this is something that, to show you how much basketball players love Joe Smith, Chris Kellner, who we talked about in the beginning, has one of the few Bill Russell autographs. Mm-hmm. That clear Bill Russell is famous for not signing autographs, including one to his own teammate, Sat Sanders in a championship. There's a team picture and the only one that's missing is Bill Russell's signature. Yet Joe Smith, he he autographed a jersey for Joe Smith, which says something about uh, being a reciprocal relationship. It wasn't like Bill Russell clearly loved Joe Smith enough to sign an autograph.
2: They were friends for 60 years.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay, we're going to take our first break. I want to do a couple of plugs. One is, which is really interesting, it's like Joe did the first podcast, uh, a thing called Off the Record, which is an oral history of popular music, 238 hours of Joe interviewing everybody in the music industry from ellen fitzgerald to paul McCartney, and it's free you can listen to it in the library of congress okay we're going to promote that we're always going to promote sprung on amazon freeview the show i worked on and uh, at tv's tim stack on twitter you're listening to its radio with tv's tim stack we're going to take our first break we'll be right back everybody, it's Tim Stack from It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack asking you to watch the show Sprung on Freevee, Amazon's new free channel. I promise you it's funny, it's got heart, and my shoulder appears in episode three. Joe! Joe.
4: Joe. We're gonna rock, gonna rock with Joe Smith. We're gonna rock, gonna rock. Joe Smith, we're going to rock, rock, rock with Joe Smith on his swing and rock and roll show. Yes, we're going to rock, rock, rock with Joe Smith, we're going to rock, rock,
0: rock with Okay, we're back with segment two. We're talking to the Smith family. Julie Kellner Smith is in there, too. They are the family of Joe Smith, this legendary record producer who just... Uh, I mean just an insanely successful life in the world of popular music. And so I thought it would be fun. I've known them for a long time. I thought it would be fun to have them. In. Uh but uh Donnie, let's go back. You you mentioned uh you, you what year did you meet Joe and how did you meet him and then how did you get engaged? How did that all go?
3: Well, I met him in 1957. I would say uh, March April of
0: 1957.
3: Uh-huh. And uh he was here on a holiday.
0: He was in L.A., uh, which you, you also you you grew up in, well, I wasn't there, but you grew up in post-war Los Angeles. When I always think of like, that's when I would have really loved to have lived in Los Angeles, and you saw that.
3: Oh, it was such fun. Before I met Mary Jo, Ciro's and Macombo were date nights. Uh-huh. And- uh, see Jerry Lewis and and Dean Martin and so many famous famous people uh, Ethel Merman right uh, they would play these clubs and it would be fantastic Sammy Davis Jr. and his uncles uh, it was just such a fun time
0: oh my gosh. So,, uh, so you met Joe in '56. Is that what you just said something? Joe: in 57.: In 57. In 57. Yeah. And then how long uh, and then so he, he we're but married I'm married in 57.: You're married in 57. Yeah. So August. he obviously yeah. swept you off your feet. What did your family think of marrying this crazy guy from the crazy DJ from Boston?
3: Well, my grandmother, my old Jewish grandmother said, for me- meant to disc jockey, what does it mean? She <laughs> had no idea. No. <laughs> I was really swept off my feet by him, right. by his humor, by his kindness. He was just a lovely, lovely man.
0: Yes, he was.
3: as could be, yeah.
0: But I got to think the humor, too, just and knowing you guys, that uh, the jokes are always, uh, they're winner. You can win people over. With that, so then, so then, you moved back to Boston and lived in Boston. I did. Okay,
3: I lived in Boston for six months. Then I moved to New York with Joe, uh, and then back to Boston. I moved about seven times in two and a half years. Uh, we moved back to L.A. in 1960, right after Jeffrey was born, and Julie
0: arrived in 61. So. Um, we're giving away their ages. No, I'm just kidding. I was say.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Don't uh, they look good? <laughs> oh, no,
0: I didn't know that. We <laughs> so can turn the tables on you. Um, so, so, so getting, so he gets a job as a promotions manager for Heartstone. you said. Heartstone Records.
3: Well, no. First, he worked at, at Heartstone, which distributed records.
0: I see. They were so what yeah. was what would have been his job at the time to give up being a DJ what was that job he took
3: oh it was just to make ends meet and they were wonderful to him right wonderful family uh and after that uh, shortly after that uh he was asked to join Warner Brothers he came to my father and asked my father if he thought it was a good idea and my dad said jump on it It's a great company. Wow. So, yeah, well, the record company wasn't so great at that point. And uh, it became great with Peter, Paul and Mary and Jeff Mm -hmm. fill in the blanks. Petula Clark was there.
0: Yeah. The
2: the, the company that he joined was terrible. Uh, Jack Warner had started it several years earlier uh, to cash in on musicals. Uh, the soundtrack for Camelot made more money than the picture, and and he wanted it. And so he started this, but musicals fell out of favor in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, and they had absolutely a, a, a lousy roster. They had Ed Kooky Burns from uh, <laughs> uh, Sunset Strip Show. Sure. Um, Who had and,
0: one hit, and that was it.
2: Yeah, uh, Kooky Kooky, lend me your comb. Yeah. And uh, and so they were awful. And over a period of years, a couple of things happened. Uh, one is that they acquired Frank Sinatra's uh, record label, Reprise, that had all of the older kind of artists. Frank, the best, it, yeah, but the, the best label
0: and the best Sinatra albums, I think, are the Reprise. Right. So Dean Martin
2: and and Jimmy Durante and Sammy Davis and. and uh, uh, Hello,
3: mother. Like Hello, father.
2: Uh, uh, <laughs> Alan Sherman. Exactly. He, he was signed to Warner Brothers. Uh, uh, was Alan Sherman, and uh, then a, a bunch of things happened in order. Bob Newhart, oh, Alan Sherman, and Bill Cosby had hugely successful record albums that kept the company afloat in the early '60s. And then they caught uh, caught a wave of the Everly Brothers, uh, Petula Clark, uh, Peter Paul and Mary, and then. Came the electrification of the Grateful Dead and Jimi Hendrix and the singer-songwriters like Joni Mitchell and James Taylor, uh, and so it was quite an evolution over a very short period of period of time.
0: And that's something I, in going through the bibliography and all, and 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 the biography of it all, one of the things I noticed was it also timed out with. 45s becoming albums you just mentioned these comedy albums but all these other groups you know albums started selling not 45s anymore so i'm guessing the days of the one hit wonder sorry hit the mic the days of the one hit wonder are over and he has to find legitimate acts who can carry an entire album to sell the whole album is that right
2: yes However, there were plenty of one-hit wonders uh, <laughs> along the way. Uh, perhaps you'll remember Molo and their hit "Suavecito." No, I don't remember I that. March, uh, the I,
1: I March, the right? March, right march, my vehicle, vehicle, baby. vehicle, baby. Yeah,
0: vehicle, baby. I love that song.
1: I always yeah. thought they that was Dad, Chicago. It's not. They gave Dad a rubber record with all the one-hit wonders. Do you remember that? <laughs> really? <laughs>
2: not a gold album.
0: A hey, Rubber. <laughs> rubber. <laughs> That's really funny um okay so and i was going to say like it just seemed like his career really then changed i i the way i'm looking at it you sign the grateful dead and that whole period takes off and i'm guessing that's when he really started moving up the ladder
2: yes there were there were a lot of things happening at the corporate level but um the the guy who had been the president of warner brothers mike Maitland. Uh, was kind of passed over in favor of Joe and Moe Austin, who'd come over in the reprise deal and stayed with Warner Brothers for many years uh, up until the 90s. Um, but uh, yes, he he really, he'd been the promotion man of the year for several years at the famous Bill Gavin convention, but that was hardly the same as being a record company
0: president when music was the the biggest force driving the culture. Right. And you're absolutely right. It was, it became it. I don't know whether it was timed in with Woodstock or whatever, but it really became, you're absolutely right. The driving force of the culture. So, um, and you mentioned the name Mo Austin, his name was mentioned a lot at the memorial service. So mm-hmm. those two guys sounded like they were really in tandem with each other.
2: Yeah. Well, they were partners. Most spoke uh, most since passed away uh but uh they they were really like partners in it and at a at a certain point in uh in the middle 70s uh there was an opportunity for joe to to go and run his own show at Electra records and
0: uh whoops i think i lost you no, no, uh, no.
2: um at at Electra records and so he left and most state at warner brothers
0: wow um, yeah, I do remember him. The guy I really remember at the memorial <laughs> was the wine guy. There was a guy in a wine club that yeah. spoke at the memorial who I thought was oh, Mel Brooks is unbelievable, but, but that guy spoke, I really loved it. Like it was a non showbiz thing. And what it also caught was sort of a glimpse of Joe, like, eh, it wasn't just all record business. It was like he, as you said, he really enjoyed a good glass of wine and it belonged to this wine club and it was really important to him. Uh,
2: that guy's name is Bob Yule And I call him Bob Eulogy So uh, <laughs> It's like a, a highly specialized Thing that he's got
0: going on Is speaking at the, uh, at the Funerals of his uh, His wine friends In fact he's hired himself out now He goes out on the road as Bob Eulogy You can hire yeah, but- him to speak <laughs> at uh, To speak at a relative funeral uh, Okay yeah,
1: but, we're- but Joe got into wine Because he was traveling to Europe to sign acts. Isn't that right, Mom? I mean, that's, that's right, Julie. Really. He he had a book,
3: a wine book, uh, Johnson, I think it was called. And, Hugh Johnson,
2: Hugh yeah, and he
3: read that whole book on the trip to France. And uh, he just loved, loved the wine. He was introduced to it by People who were also uh, in the music business. And uh, I think they get him a little high to make a deal. (laughs) (laughs)
2: The the kicker to the story is he goes out to uh, he's in Paris and they take him to this restaurant called La Mille Louis. And it's the first time he's ever really had wine. He grew up in, in Chelsea. He was in the army. He was working his way up. You know, if he didn't really have any money. French wine was not a big thing in the United States. So he goes uh, and and they have this wonderful lunch and, and this begins his his journey that he pursues all the rest of his his days. Um, but he goes back to the office. At, now, now, this is in France and he was just going there to meet their distributors. Warner Brothers was not a big company at the time and they had a different distributor in, in each territory. So in Paris, there was one in London, Brussels, whatever. And and he was going there to, to make their acquaintance. And he goes back to their office, and they're playing him records that they're trying to sell him: Charles Aznavour yeah. and Maurice Chevalier, and this kind of thing. And he's going like, pass, "What am I going to do with this?" Pass. And the last one, he says, "What about that girl singer?" And they pull out a record and they put it on. Uh, her her husband worked at this company. His name was Claude Wolf, and her name was Petula Clark, and the record really? was called "Downtown." And so trying to uh, maintain some composure, because he could smell that this was a huge hit, Uh said, I'll take that one. (laughs) Came back, and it it was a number one record, and arguably it was all downhill from there.
0: I would say it was. (laughs) uh, uh, Okay. Uh, We're going to take our second break. I'm talking to the Smith family, Donnie, Jeffrey, Julie Smith, Smith-Kelder. You're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack, and we'll be right back. Still, the people were telling Linda, you can't do this. I'm guilty. When she was going to do the Nelson Riddle album, uh, I didn't think it was a good idea.
2: Not because she couldn't do it, but because we had this run going with rock and roll
0: records and country rock.
3: I said, I'd like to find somebody that can write arrangements like Nelson Riddle. He said, why don't you just ask Nelson Riddle? Well, I didn't know he was still alive. You were the only person that I knew that could
0: that could do
1: orchestrations
0: mm-hmm. like this. Uh, that was a clip from Linda Ronstadt's uh, documentary. Um, what is it called again? <laughs> I have it written down. I forgot the name of it. doesn't matter. But um, it's a wonderful music documentary, and Joe's an integral part of it. Another thing I love about that is that Joe is a little self-deprecating in the documentary because Linda Ronstadt came to him to do two entirely different albums twice, and each time he was sort of a little reluctant to do it, but then said yes, and they became big sellers for him. And he kind of makes fun of himself in the documentary. It's very fun. Uh, it's called the sound of my voice. If you have not seen that documentary, it's so it's so good. Uh, so let's go back. Some wh- another things. This is sort of around the time I met you guys uh, in Santa Barbara, but the Lakers were a big part of your lives. Is that Absolutely. a fair thing to say? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. And, we, uh,
3: yep. Joe loved basketball, and I learned about basketball. Uh, When I first married him with the Celtics, right? Uh, we moved to L.A. Excuse me. It was either hockey or basketball. Uh, I had two little children at home and I said, I choose basketball. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Our first tickets were eight dollars and 50 cents. And we went on from there in Los Angeles with the Lakers. The Lakers moved to L.A. the same year we did.
0: So you and, and correct? Did you get season tickets that first year? Were you season ticket holders? We always had tickets.
2: They they got always seats had at, t- at the forum the the first year in nineteen sixty seven sixty eight, and the the floor seats. Uh, he wound up swapping tickets with uh, the baseball player Frank Robinson. Oh my gosh! Uh, and and they, I still had the ticket stubs that they were eight dollars and fifty cents a piece. <laughs> Buy an entire season for two seats for less than one game now.
0: (laughs) Um, But uh, this is what what I sort of wanted to ask you was that 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 really became like like a like a part of your life like the Lakers schedule Donnie was just for all of you it was just like we're going to a Lakers game we have four seats. I know, you know, I was lucky enough to sit in one of them once. It was so great. It was just an incredible experience. But it really was like the Lakers were a part of your life. It was a religion. That's what it was. Every Tuesday, Friday,
1: and Sunday.
0: Right. And it wasn't just the other thing, too. It's just like the people who might be in your house growing up, which I want to get to. I want to talk about the Lakers first. But also Jerry West was was a great friend of yours
3: yes, he was he's a wonderful man we and, uh, all the people
0: we had a a standing rule that
2: there would be no uh weddings or children born or anything <laughs> like that in the months of May and June <laughs> that would interfere with the playoff schedule
1: <laughs> and then you started to combine the two things they loved, and you started doing wine dinners for the Lakers. <laughs> oh my goodness. We had a
3: lot of those, Uh, no women, just uh, (laughs) just Lakers Lakers and the people, floor seat people. And uh, I don't know how many we had, maybe five of those at our home on Greenway and uh, on on Roxbury.
0: Now, um, my Lakers story was in 81, Uh the same restaurant I worked at when I waited on Johnny Carson. But the coaches, the, the coaching staff and the staff came in after, in 1981, after they won the championship. So there was a celebration. And then that night, I think they won on a Sunday, Monday night before the parade, they came in the ginger man. And I waited on Paul Westhead and Pat Riley. That's mm-hmm. my wow. little uh, Lake. That's all my Lakers story. Uh, Paul Westhead was a really nice guy. Pat Riley Uh, i'm sure you have a different take on it but i do want to ask you about the hbo show because you must have seen the hbo show showtime and the way they portrayed jerry west i thought it was i can't believe that that was true that's that's my question
2: not true first of all this was a fictionalization yes. they did a lot of pressing. it wasn't a documentary and it was great i thought it was i it was very, very entertaining. entertaining yes uh there were aspects of it that were truish and uh jerry west is a an outspoken person and lets you know exactly how he feels about things so uh i can imagine that there that he was uh if he was in conflict with the the team that
0: he would let them know And what about the portrayal of, um, John C. Riley? did, did we like him? Jerry Buffs. He was fantastic. I mean,
2: the whole thing was great. I I can't wait for season two.
0: Yeah. Um, anyway, I was just, uh, I just remember, you know, and we'd be watching on TV and, and I would, I would yell to my wife. Oh my God, there's Joe and Donnie because they were always in the same seats. It was just wonderful. Um, So here's another question about that, and we're going to get into more in in growing up there, but I feel like, and you got, and Donnie, you and Joe were sort of right there, and and Julie and her husband, Jamie, were right there. Like, was there, like, the Lakers game was a thing to be at? And I know you'd love the sport, but there was also something really cool about being at the function in town and the Lakers game back in those days was sort of the place. Were there other, like not the place, but other places like that you always went to, mm-hmm. like um, my mind is going was Chasen's on a Sunday night. Was that a thing?
1: Chasen's
2: on Sunday night was a thing. Yeah.
1: Bago. <laughs> Bago was a thing.
2: But Chasens, you would have Ronald Reagan in right. the table, uh, uh, Alfred Hitchcock at another, Jimmy Stewart possibly at a, at a third. Everybody
0: dressed up. Frank Sinatra. Yeah.
3: yeah, it was so much fun just to be rubbernecking there.
0: And, you and the would,
3: food was delicious.
0: Yeah, I only got to go there once, but you're right. The food was delicious. And there's that great documentary. I think it's called The Last Night of Chasins or something about their closing it's really it's it's really well done um so and would you go there as a family like would the four of you go for sunday night dinner there
3: of course and we we'd have our celebrations there it was great fun to have a birthday party there uh and we did Passover Seders there with the Austin family, where we invited all our friends and many people who were in the industry. Uh, it, it became a place to come if you were invited. Uh, it had, it was just a fun night of uh, a religious service. Everybody participated. It was... Uh, Hmm.
2: Uh, Joe was the leader. And and this was not some something with just a couple of families. This this grew to be 30, 60 people uh, where uh, I remember one year uh, in among the uh, participants, Quincy Jones, Carrie Fisher, David Byrne. Unbelievable. You know, it was it was more than your uh, your couple of families of Hollywood Jews.
1: You didn't have to be Jewish <laughs> to go to that Seder.
2: Maybe
0: thrive Bread. Uh, the Jewish girl I did in high school her her parents kept telling me I read the best at the Seder so that was uh, <laughs> you read so much better than my children uh, okay we're going to take an, our final break uh, I just want to plug again uh, off the record an oral history of popular music it's uh, Joe Smith interv- 238 hours of interviews where Joe That I mean that's crazy that he did that because it's a real commitment But he went in and interviewed all these people from Ella Fitzgerald to Paul McCartney, and it's free. You can get it. You can listen to it in the Library of Congress. It's really uh, something to listen to. Uh, We're going to take a break. You're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. We'll be right back. tim stack and having been in show business for so long i have a lot of really funny friends and you can hear them all on its radio with tv's tim stack that's part of the jeremiah show so listen
2: my wife who came out here uh, 58 years ago on a blind date and somebody told me she was gorgeous and an heiress
1: one out of two. <laughs> I've been looking for the money for 58 years. Not a clue. <laughs> uh,
0: welcome back. I'm talking to the Smith family, Donnie Smith, Jeff Smith, Julie Kellner Smith. And we're talking, we started talking about Joe Smith, who was this legend in the record business, just crazy legendary producer of popular music and 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 comedy too. Uh, the Alan Sherman. Him. He did not
2: produce popular music. He produced two, three albums. Hello, dummy. By Don Rickles, the 2013-year-old tw- the man by uh, Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks, and another Don Rickles album. He never produced records. Oh, really? Yes. He was a music company executive.
0: But I got a feeling he was in the studio a bunch to see this. I just have a feeling yeah. he he probably liked going to a studio to see these yeah. things done. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no. So so now, and Julie, I, this is so many of these stories I've heard from you, but I want to go back to uh, Beverly Hills. I guess in the sixties and seventies, when you first moved, when did you move to Beverly Hills?
1: Nineteen
0: seventy-one. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And I, part of this is because I grew up in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. I'm just I watch TV. I think, oh, I want to be in TV. I want to be in TV. And so all these people that I watched on television were your neighbors. So mm-hmm. just tell us some of the people who were in your neighborhood.
1: The uh Lucille Ball well, our block was uh Lucille Ball, Peter Falk, Ira Gershwin, um Agnes Moorhead, help me. And one, one street over was uh Jimmy Stewart. Who else was on our block?
0: He, oh, d- and uh, didn't Henry Fonda I'll, I'll live next
2: what was that, Jeff? I are, are Oscar, Oscar Levant and Ella Fitzgerald lived lived around the corner. Oh my God! Jack
1: Benny' house was on our street. Jack Benny.
2: It's
0: unbelievable.
1: It's so, funny, but nobody came out their front door. Everybody went out their back door through the alley.
0: You said that to me once, and I was wondering why. And I'm assuming there were tour buses going by. Yes. And tell your tour bus story, Julie. <laughs>
1: Um, I'll tell you that we we always had lemonade stands.
0: That's the question story uh, I wanted you to tell.
1: Ira Gershwin's wife, Lenore, was a big tipper. Just have to chop <laughs> out Ira Gershwin. Um, and, oh, by the way, and Agnes Moorhead dressed up as Endora on Halloween. Did she Bewitched. really?
0: Mm-hmm. That is, and, and that was my question: like, who? She obviously won. Who had the best house at Halloween? It sounds like Agnes Moorhead did.
1: There was a, there was the witch's house on Walden. That's pretty cool.
0: Were there any of the neighbors on Halloween who gave out like money, like Bob Hope did? Apparently, that's why Toluca Leg took off.
1: You didn't trick or treat in our neighborhood because it was inefficient.
0: Really,
2: because the houses the house. were far apart.
1: Yeah, I
0: they're big. No, time is money.
2: Yeah. It takes you
0: too long to get to the next house. I'm as candy, yes. <laughs> uh, that's funny. So, where would you trick or treat then? Like, what's a good south neighborhood? Like Westwood? No, south of the Boulevard. The, the McCarty was a good street oh, down, down there, okay. near, near Beverly High. Between Wilshire and the Olympic was great. Yeah. And you would just run like crazy. Um, it was. But but uh, back to the tour. So there were tour buses going by your house all the time. Like yes. you'd hear the microphone on the road, Jack Benny, and all that stuff. Yes. And what about the, the people I remember, uh, they don't do it anymore, I guess, because it's all on the internet. But I always remember, and I always heard it was a, like a weird cult, where the people that sold the maps to the Hollywood stars, like I heard something shady about that business. But I remember people buying them. There was always a guy on Sunset as you were leaving, going like past the 9,200 build 9,000 building. There was always somebody right there. There was somebody further down, like around Beverly Glen, selling maps to the Stars Home. So clearly, those people, too, were driving through your neighborhood all the time.
1: I don't even think they were accurate. They were They were
2: accurate to a point, because they only published them like... Once every couple of years yeah, exactly. so or whatever, but right. they, they were substantially correct.
0: No, you're right, though, because if you looked at them, somebody's like Lana Turner lives here. <laughs> no. <laughs> they may no, have no, she died about 15 years ago.
3: <laughs> I want to tell this story about Julie and the lemonade stand. Great. Uh, we were out of town and Julie and her girlfriend had a lemonade stand and she would holler, lemonade and in information. <laughs> so one bus with Japanese people visitors stopped, and
1: they sold them the lemonade.
3: So you and- would
0: you would yell at the tour bus to stop because it's again time is money. There are a lot of customers on there.
1: Like very efficient sales right there. <laughs> and one day, what did you do, Julie? Oh, I um, I offered them. I told them that um. It was Frank Sinatra's house and I (laughs) took them through and um, I took them through because in my father's hallway, there were all these gold records and I figured they probably couldn't read who's the gold. And a lot of them were Frank Sinatra (laughs) (laughs) for a buck per person, you know, kind of cleaned up. So (laughs) I don't know how much money she could make. We would have kept it up.
0: (laughs) That is so funny. That is uh, such a visual of that. So how long? How many times did you do that, Julie?
1: I didn't do that often, but funny. I, I went to some kind of dinner, and I was sitting at a table with Lucy Arnez. Yeah. Um, she was talking about her lemonade stands, and I thought, "Wow, I didn't even know I had competition down the block." <laughs>
0: I think uh, <laughs> she. Now that we're talking about birthdays again, I think she's got a few years. I think Lucy Arnez. <laughs> <laughs> um. That is so funny about the tour bus and the lemonade stand and your friend who you clearly made a bunch of dough with. That's something uh, my wife would have done too, if she lived in your neighborhood. That's so funny. <laughs> um, so uh, we're going to, we're going to wrap things up is there, I, I do want to ask you about uh, your take on the, um, on the off the record and oral history. Are there particular favorites in there that you all have listened to? Like, uh, go start with this one because there's so much to choose from.
3: I love the one of Alice Cooper and the and the snake. Alice always traveled with the snake, and he was uh, I think in New Orleans and performing, and put the snake in the bathtub with some water, and the snake disappeared.
4: <laughs>
3: and about a month later there was another artist performing and uh you'll never guess where the cape where the snake came up
0: right through the toilet oh it my god it was helen Reddy. <laughs> <laughs> the snake attacked helen Reddy, yeah. and, and she <laughs> said back to the snake i am woman Hear me roar.
4: <laughs> I love
0: it. Uh, that's a good one. Uh the Rob
2: Stewart's interview was very funny where he de- describes uh Ron Wood's wedding and how crazy he was. And they had they've got all of the rock and roll musicians and they take off. And there's his like the bride was <laughs> they left her behind. <laughs> they, were all, they were getting high and whatever. They like forgot her.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and were, were there times at your house where, and this is for Jeff and Julie, like you'd come downstairs for breakfast or come home from seeing a movie and somebody's in your kitchen table or living room. Is there anybody that jumps out in your mind for that?
1: Didn't you, bump You threw the party for James Taylor and Carly Simon.
3: After they were married. Oh.
2: Married. Oh. That was that was different. That was a party. That was a party. Actually, he drew the line between church and state pretty good. Really? um, Where we didn't have a it's not like Jerry Garcia was uh, was making omelets uh, downstairs or anything like that.
1: Um, But at parties, there were uh, there were people.
0: Right. And so so he'd throw a party because it was a business thing because it was church and state. There, there was a party for Ahmed Erdogan and his brother Nestle
2: and uh, Jerry Wexler, the three guys who founded Atlantic Records, uh, where Dr. John was on keyboards oh my and uh, Bette Midler was uh, was leading the chorus and uh, a lot of maracas.
0: Now, <laughs> I want to, I did want to talk, Ahmed Erdogan fascinates me and I saw a great documentary about him too. And now, as much as he was a record company owner, was he not also what you would call, literally call a producer? He was literally a producer and a songwriter.
2: He wrote under the spell Erdogan backwards, A Nougatree. Never knew <laughs> that. He, he wrote some songs for like Big Joe Turner and, and that. I mean, they they were silly songs, but, you know, they needed to. They had studio time booked. They needed a song, and and he would whisper in in Joe Turner's ears the, the words to sing, and, uh, and they'd that would record be a song. something. Yeah, but he he literally produced the records with Jerry Wexler, yeah,
0: and Tom Dowd. There's a book I never got to talk to Joe about it. I would love to. There's a book called Hollywood Eden, which is all about. It's all about Palisades or not Pal? No, Uni High. Mm-hmm. It's all about the. It's a little before your time. But Donnie might remember, but it's all about um, like the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean and all these people that went to Uni High at that time, who then got into the record business. And you realize it was so crazy new at the time. Like these guys would uh, uh, go in and make a record and literally recording time. You had to pay by the hour. And that was crucial. Like you had to be done. Because you were literally paying for studio by the hour,
2: and if you if you went over, you would pay uh, overtime to the musicians union. That that's the book that has a lot of uh, references. I, I read it recently. Uh, um, Lou Adler's in it. Big. He's right? very big he, in it. Shows up big time. Jan and Dean. Yes. all those guys. Yeah, and and when Joe came here, not only was Warner Brothers kind of a, a lousy company, but Los Angeles was pretty much a backwater. You know it. It was he got here at the right time and all of a sudden electra records very separately before he got there with jack Holtzman signed the the doors and and uh arthur uh, uh and arthur what's his name in love you know i um, the the birds on sunset strip it, talk about the right places at the right time sunset boulevard in the early 60s was just absolutely bustling but go back a few years and you were at zeroes. You were at, at a whole different <laughs> kind of mindset. Right. And the rock and the roll thing exploded. And he was very fortunate to to have moved out here uh really because he wanted Donnie wanted to move. She didn't like it back in Boston. And and he saw, you know, Horace Greeley go west, young man. Uh-huh. And
0: and no, he got here. It did. Donnie. It did time out. With the whole music industry moving to California, like a lot of businesses, but, um, you know, especially with the music business at that time. Um, I just want to thank you all for doing this. It's fun for me to do it, and it's really fun because Jeremiah is here. We get the camera on him for one second. There we go. Jeremiah produces this whole thing, Jeremiah Higgins, who you guys would love because he's really a food and whiny. He's a food and wino guy. Uh, (laughs) He does a great podcast and and, uh, a a lot of radio now he does, but he's all connected to the food, like the people, the food and wine people who are on his podcast are crazy. He's like Joe Smith in the food and wine world in terms of podcasting, like the the people he deals with on a daily basis—you would, you really like them. But anyway, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Really fun, Donnie. Great to see you as always.
3: I loved it, just loved it. Thank
1: you for having us.
0: Thank you uh, for having you, Julie. I'll see you around the neighborhood. Thanks, and Tim. thank you for doing this, and Jeffrey. Thank you very Oops. much for doing this.
1: I have wine, Tim. So this
0: week. Okay, great. Yes. Okay. Julie went from selling lemonade to wine. So I'm going <laughs> to go over and... She'll uh, show you around our house if you buy three cases. <laughs> <laughs> Frank Sinatra lived here. Oh, I didn't know. That's interesting. Uh, anyway, thank you so much again. Really a pleasure for me to have you. Uh, join me next time. Dr. D, thank you. Our engineer, Jeremiah, thank you. And join me next time on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. As always, a big thanks to our station manager, Les Carroll, for letting us on the air at all. Listeners, we appreciate you and want to hear from you. Please send us your ideas at jeremiah at theJeremiahShow.com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The show is produced
5: by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins and me, your announcer, Tony Kelly.